0: WAR AND PEACE, SECOND EPILOGUE, CHAPTER Eight. READ for LibriVox.org. If history dealt only with external phenomena, the establishment of this simple and obvious law would suffice, and we should have finished our argument. But the law of history relates to man. A particle of matter cannot tell us that it does not feel the law of attraction or repulsion, and that that law is untrue but man who is the subject of history says plainly i am free and am therefore not subject to the law the presence of the problem of man's free will though unexpressed is felt at every step of history all seriously thinking historians have involuntarily encountered this question all the contradictions and obscurities of history and the false path historical science has followed are due solely to the lack of a solution to that question If the will of every man were free, that is, if each man could act as he pleased, all history would be a series of disconnected incidents. If in a thousand years even one man in a million could act freely, that is, as he chose, it is evident that one single free act of that man's, in violation of the laws governing human action, would destroy the possibility of the existence of any laws for the whole of humanity if there be a single law governing the actions of men free will cannot exist for then man's will is subject to that law in this contradiction lies the problem of free will which from most ancient times has occupied the best human minds and from most ancient times has been presented in its whole tremendous significance the problem is that regarding man as a subject of observation from whatever point of view theological, historical, ethical, or philosophic, we find a general law of necessity to which he, like all that exists, is subject. But regarding him from within ourselves as what we are conscious of, we feel ourselves to be free. This consciousness is a source of self-cognition quite apart from and independent of reason. Through his reason man observes himself, but only through consciousness does he know himself. Apart from consciousness of self, no observation or application of reason is conceivable. To understand, observe, and draw conclusions, man must first of all be conscious of himself as living. A man is only conscious of himself as a living being by the fact that he wills, that is, is conscious of his volition. But his will, which forms the essence of his life, man recognizes, and can but recognize, as free if observing himself man sees that his will is always directed by one and the same law whether he observes the necessity of taking food using his brain or anything else he cannot recognize this never varying direction of his will otherwise than as a limitation of it were it not free it could not be limited a man's will seems to him to be limited just because he is not conscious of it except as free you say i am not and am not free but I have lifted my hand and let it fall. Everyone understands that this illogical reply is an irrefutable demonstration of freedom. That reply is the expression of a consciousness that is not subject to reason. If the consciousness of freedom were not a separate and independent source of self-consciousness, it would be subject to reasoning and to experience. But in fact, such subjection does not exist, and is inconceivable. A series of experiments and arguments proves to every man that he, as an object of observation, is subject to certain laws, and man submits to them, and never resists the laws of gravity or impermeability once he has become acquainted with them. But the same series of experiments and arguments proves to him that the complete freedom of which he is conscious in himself is impossible, and that his every action depends on his organization, his character, and the motives acting upon him. Yet man never submits to the deductions of these experiments and arguments. Having learned from experiment and argument that a stone falls downwards, a man indubitably believes this, and always expects the law that he has learned to be fulfilled. But learning just as certainly that his will is subject to laws, he does not and cannot believe this. However often experiment and reasoning may show a man that under the same conditions, and with the same character, he will do the same thing as before, yet when under the same conditions and with the same character he approaches for the thousandth time the action that always ends in the same way he feels as certainly convinced as before the experiment that he can act as he pleases every man savage or sage however incontestably reason and experiment may prove to him that it is impossible to imagine two different courses of action in precisely the same conditions feels that without this irrational conception which constitutes the essence of freedom, he cannot imagine life. He feels that, however impossible it may be, it is so. For without this conception of freedom not only would he be unable to understand life, but he would be unable to live for a single moment. He could not live because all man's efforts and all his impulses to life are only efforts to increase freedom. Wealth and poverty, fame and obscurity, power and subordination, strength and weakness, health and disease, culture and ignorance, work and leisure, repletion and hunger, virtue and vice, are only greater or lesser degrees of freedom. A man having no freedom cannot be conceived of except as deprived of life. If the conception of freedom appears to reason to be a senseless contradiction, like the possibility of performing two actions at one and the same instant of time, or of an effect without a cause, that only proves that consciousness is not subject to reason. This unshakable, irrefutable consciousness of freedom, uncontrolled by experiment or argument, recognized by all thinkers, and felt by everyone without exception, this consciousness without which no conception of man is possible, constitutes the other side of the question. Man is the creation of an all-powerful, all-good, and all-seeing God. What is sin, the conception of which arises from the consciousness of man's freedom? That is a question for theology. The actions of men are subject to general immutable laws expressed in statistics. What is man's responsibility to society, the conception of which results from the conception of freedom? That is a question for jurisprudence. MAN'S ACTIONS PROCEED FROM HIS INNATE CHARACTER AND THE MOTIVES ACTING UPON HIM. WHAT IS CONSCIENCE, AND THE PERCEPTION OF RIGHT AND WRONG IN ACTIONS THAT FOLLOWS FROM THE CONSCIOUSNESS OF FREEDOM? THAT IS A QUESTION FOR ETHICS. MAN, IN CONNECTION WITH THE GENERAL LIFE OF HUMANITY, APPEARS SUBJECT TO LAWS WHICH DETERMINE THAT LIFE. BUT THE SAME MAN, APART FROM THAT CONNECTION, APPEARS TO BE FREE. HOW SHOULD THE PAST LIFE OF NATIONS AND OF HUMANITY BE REGARDED? as the result of the free, or as the result of the constrained activity of man? That is a question for history. Only in our self-confident day of the popularization of knowledge, thanks to that most powerful engine of ignorance, the diffusion of printed matter, has the question of the freedom of will been put on a level on which the question itself cannot exist. In our time the majority of so-called advanced people, that is, the crowd of ignoramuses, have taken the work of the naturalists who deal with one side of the question for a solution of the whole problem they say and write and print that the soul and freedom do not exist for the life of man is expressed by muscular movements and muscular movements are conditioned by the activity of the nerves the soul and free will do not exist because at an unknown period of time we sprang from the apes they say this not at all suspecting that thousands of years ago that same law of necessity which, with such ardour they are now trying to prove by physiology and comparative zoology, was not merely acknowledged by all the religions and all the thinkers, but has never been denied. They do not see that the role of the natural sciences in this matter is merely to serve as an instrument for the illumination of one side of it. For the fact that, from the point of view of observation, reason and the will are merely secretions of the brain, and that man, following the general law, may have developed from lower animals at some unknown period of time, only explains from a fresh side the truth admitted thousands of years ago by all the religious and philosophic theories, that from the point of view of reason man is subject to the law of necessity. But it does not advance by a hair's breadth the solution of the question, which has another, opposite side, based on the consciousness of freedom. If men descended from the apes at an unknown period of time, that is as comprehensible as that they were made from a handful of earth at a certain period of time. In the first case the unknown quantity is the time, in the second case it is the origin. And the question of how man's consciousness of freedom is to be reconciled with the law of necessity to which he is subject, cannot be solved by comparative physiology and zoology, for in a frog a rabbit or an ape we can observe only the muscular nervous activity but in man we observe consciousness as well as the muscular and nervous activity The naturalists, and their followers, thinking they can solve this question, are like plasterers set to plaster one side of the walls of a church, who, availing themselves of the absence of the chief superintendent of the work, should, in an access of zeal, plaster over the windows, icons, woodwork, and still unbuttressed walls, and should be delighted that, from their point of view, as plasterers, everything is now so smooth and regular. End of chapter 8